Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I had a realization about myself in preparing to be with you today, which I want to share. Yeah, let's hear it. As long as it has to do with me, Kimmy, you know. Yes, it's completely about you. So I have realized in my decades of interviewing people, and I've been blessed to interview heads of state and rock stars somehow remain calm and cool. The one scenario where I get nervous and dork out is around really funny people. Really? Yes. <laughs> I think it's because some, I mean, I like to believe I'm a naturally funny person, but it's something I so look up to and aspire that I get nervous and I'm like a giggly girl. Like <laughs> I, I cannot remain cool and calm and confident. So today that is my goal. Well, first of all, uh, the fact that you consider me to be as somebody who is funny, I love that. I I totally understand that feeling of I need to be more. Yes. I need to be more. Yeah, well that's an everyday feeling for me. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why you were such a great guest on my podcast. If you have listened to the very popular podcast Mental Illness Happy Hour, you know what a gifted interviewer the man you just heard is. Paul Gail Martin cuts through the noise and gets to the heart of things. He does it with compassion and a very funny sense of humor he honed over 25 years in stand-up comedy. Before his podcast, Paul was the host of a beloved TV show called Dinner and a Movie. And once the show ended, he decided to switch gears and had been kicking around the idea of starting a podcast. And I remember thinking, no, I want to have an idea that I can really get behind. And around that time, I happened to decide that I needed to go off my meds. And my psychiatrist was like, oh, please don't. Please don't. I was like, come on. I was pre-med. I know what I'm doing. And of course, it was terrible. The first four months were fine, which lured me into thinking I was okay. So then when the depression came back at, you know, maybe four or five months, I thought that that was reality. And I got depressed and suicidal. And one day it occurred to me, oh my God, this is the depression. Went back on my meds within four days. I was feeling better. And I thought, I've been in therapy for decades. I go to support groups. I see a psychiatrist. I believe that depression is a real thing, and I was fooled by it. I thought a podcast talking about this would probably be something that I would enjoy doing and could be helpful to other people, never imagining that I would, you know, that would be my full-time gig. I just thought, I, 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 can, I can get behind this. Paul's podcast became a big hit. His willingness to go to the dark corners of the mind, normally hidden by shame and secrecy, gained him a huge following. It also challenged him more than ever to face his own demons, including depression, 
alcoholism, and childhood trauma. If I'd looked into the future and seen what I am like today, I'd probably have thrown up. I would have been like, that's just cheesy. Today on the show, we're talking mental illness with two mentally ill yet fully medicated podcast hosts. By the way, if you haven't heard my bipolar coming out story, you can find it in the All the Wiser feed, season one, episode 10. In today's conversation, Paul talks about medication, therapy, sobriety, sex abuse, hypomania, and what works and doesn't when it comes to treating chronic depression. He also opens up about his path to finding love and intimacy he never thought he was capable of. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Just a quick warning, the mention of suicide occurs in this episode. How would you describe me? Uh, neurotic? Jackass. Nut job. Somebody that I've been sober since 03, and that was a real turning point in addressing my demons, my foibles, everything. You know, I started to feel my feelings. Paul Gail Martin grew up in South Holland, Illinois, a small suburb of Chicago. He describes his childhood as great on the surface, nothing overly traumatic. His dad was a closet alcoholic and kind of emotionally withdrawn. And his mom, well, Paul says she was a complicated person and that she didn't have a sense of appropriate boundaries. I became her therapist around six or seven. You know, I remember her breaking down and crying about how she wanted to leave all of us, you know, leave my dad. And he was a rotten bastard and we were bastards. And and me feeling like I've got to keep this family together, you know, and I promised her that we were going to be better. And it breaks my heart to think about that little boy that took that upon him. And I did. I have compassion for my mom. We don't have a relationship anymore. And it's not because of the things that she did. It's it's because she doesn't respect the boundaries I have tried to set with her. And I had to protect my own mental health. And it's the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do. But the other big piece of the puzzle was there was sexual abuse that was covert under the radar I couldn't see it at the time as that's what it was. But, you know, my spidey sense was I feel tricked. This doesn't feel right. You know, she took my temperature rectally till I was eight years old. And I just remember feeling like she was getting something out of it. And and when I asked her, why, why are we still doing it this way? She said, because I'm afraid you're going to bite down on the thermometer. And I remember like, thinking i that that this doesn't isn't right yeah that doesn't make sense is, yeah yeah that, there was a lot of stuff i could list a, a, a lot of stuff but suffice it to say it kind of all internally came to a head about i don't know maybe 9 years ago and i just broke down and one i was married at the time and my then wife said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to yeah. say this. And uh, it, it, to me, is a testament to how deeply we will compartmentalize what we're not ready to deal with. Was that tied with your sobriety and the 
the numbing mechanism? I, I, I think so. I think – well, I think one of the reasons I drank and used drugs is because I'm I'm an alcoholic – but I also think it reduced my inhibitions and made it easier for me to act out sexually, you know, which is, you know, when you're sexualized as a child, that becomes your first drug. Maybe I should just speak for myself. Maybe some people it doesn't. But for me, that was my, my first drug. I, you know, I'm ashamed to admit I was a, a serial cheater, a womanizer, objectifier, uh, a lot of stuff that I'm ashamed of. And I started going to another support group to deal with that after I've been sober about seven years. And um, that's where I really drilled down to the core issues, the trauma, my selfishness, you know, my fear. Well, it sounds to me like you were objectified, right? Mm -hmm. There was no modeling of appropriate boundaries, as you said. So... Yeah, I hope you give yourself some grace there. I try to. It's hard, though, when you know that there are people out there who, you know, if they think of you, they're like, ugh. You know, that's – for a people pleaser, that's really hard. I've made amends where I can, but it's a, it's a tremendous regret that I have. So I know you went on to college, and I was – fascinated by your college years, primarily because you were pre-med and going to be a doctor, and then you decided you would be a theater, ma <laughs> theater major and do stand-up comedy, yeah. which talk about a switcheroo. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that. And, and that is a great example of the good parts of my childhood is that I had parents who supported me pursuing what I was passionate about. My mom has always been a champion of my creativity, and it that to me speaks to the complexity of our relationships with people, that there can be so much good and and so much darkness both at the same time. But I had kind of an epiphany. Um, I My roommate at the time had talked me into participating in a college campus stand-up competition. I'd never done stand-up before, so I thought, oh, I'll take – an acting class to overcome my stage fright. And I found like, oh, wow, I really love this. And one day I was thinking, you know, if I were to die of cancer at 35, and, and if I were a doctor at that time, would I feel like I'd really grabbed life by the horns and been my authentic self? And the answer was no. And I thought, I've got parents that are supportive. Um, I'm going to give it a whirl. And I'm glad I did. I'm really glad I did. It's scary making that kind of decision. I remember after I graduated, and I had a decent day job just working at an insurance company. I'd had summer jobs working there for since I was 18. But the thought that, oh, man, uh, if I don't make it as an actor uh, – I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. And I'd always wanted to do stand-up, but I was afraid of being on stage alone. And my mom, again, a positive influence, said, you just got to get up and do it. She said, I read somewhere that comedians jot their thoughts down on three-by-five cards and they keep them around. And so I started doing that. And eventually, I started doing stand-up. And uh, after like a year and a half of doing open mics, I was able to start doing it full time. Yeah, I can't imagine what, how that must feel like to 
put yourself there on a stage, lights on you. I mean, the amount of courage and vulnerability is crazy pants. And I also think most people, I would imagine, unless they work in the industry, have a glamorized view of what it means to be a working actor in Hollywood. I know because I live here and I have friends who are actors, the amount of rejection that you face is just wearing emotionally. I mean, it is for some people thousands of times people saying, no, you're wrong and here's why. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that? What it means to be a stand-up comic on the stage, I presume feeling like you're naked. In a way, it's your worst nightmare, and in a way, it's your greatest dream. And it can be one or the other or a mixture on any given night. But connecting with a joke that you wrote and making a room full of people laugh fills a part of you temporarily that was lacking. I got a sense of myself. I, I felt love, adoration, recognition, whatever whatever you want to call it. But certainly those nights when it didn't go well. And, you know, speaking of auditions and stuff like that, because, you know, when you're a stand-up, you have a certain amount of autonomy. You give up all of that when you are working in television. And it can be really frustrating when you're used to saying whatever you want, nobody telling you what to do. Yeah, a club might not have you back because they're not a fan of yours, but you don't have to kowtow to, to anybody. Having to make those concessions kind of drove me crazy, but it was also nice to earn a comfortable living and to not have to be on the road. And the auditioning is where the rejection is. You know, it's funny, The I almost didn't go back to the callback for dinner in a movie because I had failed so many times in auditions. I thought this is just going to be another, you know, rejection, even though it's down to me and three other guys. I know one of those other guys is is going to get it. So how did that rejection, how did you experience it? Maybe numbness. Um, so it didn't it didn't really bother you? No, it bothered me. It was just, I think, a combination of chipping away at my self-esteem and bitterness at the industry and the people in power. I remember like if a movie came out that I thought was hackneyed, I would just feel such rage about it. I would just go on and on to my friends about what a horrible director this is. And I couldn't see at the time that this was me, you know, projecting did, my own inadequacies. Did you have a fantasy? Because you, you get the job, right? Now you're right. you're the host of a television show. You've That's a big deal in Hollywood to be a full-time working actor, host. You know, we have these fantasies of, well, once I get this, I'll feel fulfilled. And did did you have that notion and then the reality of it not being met? You are so perceptive and ask such great questions. That's exactly what happened. You know, the be careful what you wish for. Six episodes in, I realized, oh, I don't really like the pressure of doing television. I don't like the compromises and, you know, being a bit narcissistic and a people pleaser. 
I was so overly concerned with what my peers thought. And, you know, that show was fine with them. Some of them liked it. I don't think anybody hated it. Um, most of them probably didn't even think of it. But I was like, oh, everybody's going to be watching this week's episode and that joke I did that was subpar, you know, they're going to be it's just ridiculously full, full of myself and hard on myself. I used to have to get drunk to watch myself. Uh, Fascinating. To, yeah. I still have a hard time watching myself or uh, listening to myself because I am so critical. I... You know, there's a great article by a guy named Dr. Alan Rappaport called Co-Narcissism. And one of the things he says, when you're raised by a narcissist, who I think my mom would qualify as, he said, you tend to view the world as that parent viewed you. And my mom could be really, really critical and say, you know, she would kind of lure you in with the compliments and then put the knife in with a backhanded compliment. And so I think there was always that feeling that people weren't watching me rooting for me. They were waiting for a mistake so they could talk shit about me. Yeah. I, yeah, I relate to that. (laughs) I have a feeling you did. You have an incredible podcast, which I have been binging, Mental Illness Happy Hour. And it was really brave because I think it's important to go back in time that people weren't talking about mental health. I mean, this, (laughs) you know, through the pandemic and, you know, where we are in the world with social media and this next generation really talking openly about these types of things. But you were at the forefront of talking about something that's hard to talk about. And there was a lot of shame and a lot of secrecy. So to choose that as your subject and to develop trust with people that they would bravely meet you is really cool. Oh, thank you. I I appreciate that. You know, part of it was altruistic and another part of it was wanting to be seen. My authentic self, the part of me that I'd always hidden away And the template for that was my support groups, because in there I found that, oh, I'd been going through my life trying to impress people, thinking that that was the road to Mm. security and feeling peace. And it's actually the exact opposite. It's getting vulnerable and talking about the stuff that's hard to talk about. And then I'm met with love and support, and that feels amazing. And then I can be that person for somebody else. And then I discover the feeling of meaning and purpose rather than trying to impress people. Not that I'm done trying to impress people, but it was there that I realized I'd been going about life in a way that was counter to what I really wanted. I think we all do. And when you think about it intellectually, like, oh, people would like a facade rather than a real person. Right, it's right. like, it makes... They want a friend who's perfect. No, nobody wants a friend who's perfect. They want a friend who can own their shit when they're a dick, to be there when you need them, to be able to listen, and to be able to... Get vulnerable so that you can be that for them. And the messiness is way more interesting. Way more interesting. (laughs) So what is your diagnosis from a mental health? Um, Treatment-resistant depression due to childhood adversity is is what my psychiatrist 
sense. And what, because it manifests so differently in people, what take us into Paul and a depression? How, what does that look like? Well, I've been going through a bit of it lately because I have taken a break from video games. I think anxiety is also a, something that I that I deal with. And when there isn't that dopamine rush, I just want to go lay in bed because it just, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's like a silence that makes my skin crawl. But sitting through that, I find that the that there's a part of me that then begins to take more interest in things that are healthy. Like I've been playing a ton of guitar lately, and that's soothing to my soul. There's somebody asked my girlfriend, "What kind of music does Paul play?" And she said, "Sad." <laughs> it's uh, when somebody asks me how I'm doing. Most of the time, an honest answer would be, I don't know. But when I pick up a guitar, that's how I'm feeling. The things that I that I play feel like the words that I can't find to express. And one of your other great struggles was addiction. What was that like for you when you were in the throes of addiction and your choice to recover. Uh, sadness, anger, feeling suicidal, having a great life on paper, but not being able to feel it. It's like all the good things in my life were on the other side of a plexiglass window. And there was just this feeling of a life unlived, which sounds weird because, you know, I was doing this show that was relatively popular and able to support myself. But, you know, I think we all have an intuition about, am I where I'm supposed to be? And that's one of the places where the support group really helped me was for the first time in my life, I didn't question where I was supposed to be when I would be in that support group or having a deep conversation with somebody during the day and we're both being vulnerable. Then I would, you know, the ticking clock, uh, I couldn't hear it, and I was able to kind of relax. But the suicidal feelings is what really drove me. It's it's funny because outwardly, I didn't get DUIs, didn't drink during the day. Most people had no idea I had a drinking problem. My then wife did, but she didn't harp on me about it. I I, I went to get help because I didn't know what else to do, and I knew I was going to kill myself. Yeah, You know, something for... For me, who's somebody who's thought about mental health and been in a lot of therapy and with psychiatrists for a long time now, it was really newer information to me. You know, we know it's genetic, it's a chemical imbalance, but I only recently have understood that there can be an external circumstance that flips the switch and that it lies dormant. I actually think now looking back at myself, I'm like, that makes sense. Have you shared with your audience what your moment was that you think flipped it? I mean, there were some really traumatic things, certainly as a young child, and then went through a really difficult time late teen years, and I was diagnosed at 19. And when I start to put together the uncertainty and heartbreak and confusion in my life at that time, and it's starting to present itself, it just... 
I think the circumstances have an impact. And I had always viewed it as, you know, genetic. I have a chemical imbalance in my brain, but I think circumstances have an impact as well. Which, which I think is the consensus among mental health professionals and you know, people that research the brain. I'm sure you're familiar with that study where they found pairs of twins prone to schizophrenia where one twin happened to be raised in a healthy environment and the other twin was in an was- unhealthy environment and only the one twin, the schizophrenia, presented itself. And then the reason I guess they used schizophrenia is because it's a mental illness where there doesn't seem to be continuum where it's either kind of on or or off. Do you have a switch moment? How so? When the switch, you think the switch was, or was the switch just flickering? A bunch? I, I think it's been <laughs> flicker. I remember feeling, not knowing the word for it when I was a kid, but having to think about things to feel joy. And boy, is that a dangerous thing to do because likewise, you can destroy your mood by thinking about the future. If you're pessimistic or you have a catastrophizer in your brain, which I definitely do. I was curious because knowing that the how much you struggle with depression and identify with that, you've described periods of hypomania, which you articulate them so clearly. I haven't gotten to a point. Um, you've spoken honestly and openly about your story significantly more times than I have, so I'm still getting there. Mm-hmm. But you talk about periods of hypomania and channeling them into all this, like the way I hear you talk about it, it's like pretty obsessive and impulsive. Mm-hmm. One becomes this woodworking, another becomes photographing dogs, and you like all day, every day, obsessively researching. And you're a freaking genius and creative. So your work is actually like full on beautiful, legit, celebrated. So you're kind of rewarded for the hypomania, which I think happens in society. A lot of... They, they say that there's two... And I don't believe I'm bipolar. My I was psych- going to ask you about that. My psychiatrist that. says I'm kind of on the cusp of it. But they say, you know, there's two kinds of bipolar, the kind that gets you promoted and the kind that gets you fired. <laughs> And I think mine is kind of of both, my cycling between depression and hypomania. So explain hypomania because you do a really good job. Or explain a day and you – or a period where you had hypomania. Well, there was a period when it started to become easy to buy domain names. And this is when they were expensive. This is when it was $70 a pop to buy a domain name. And I, in my infinite wisdom, decided – oh, this is how I'm going to secure my financial future. And I, over the course of two nights, bought $35,000 worth of worthless domain names. In 48 hours. In 48 hours. (laughs) $35,000. What was the worst domain name? Oldpeoplefucking.net. Not Not even... Not I mean, of course, oh, no, of course I got .com, <laughs> but, you know, and then I would put hyphens in it and because I wanted to cover all bases of things, you know, I, I did stuff around the, the radio business and, you know, because I was like, oh, the show preparation is a, is a joke, so radio show prep. And then once I started thinking about sex, I was like, well, all, what are all the things that turn people on? And so, you know, it, I look back and I, and I cringe. Uh, I think there's two that were worthwhile 
And I think I still have both of them, darkcomedy.com and singlemaltscotch.com. But um, you should tell those. The, the rest of them just fucking an embarrassment. Um, Do you look back in shame and embarrassment? I can, I can laugh. No. Oh, it's really funny. It's funny. It took not me a funny. while to get out of debt from that because that, I did not have that money when I did that. When I got into wine, yeah, spent all my money on wine, bought a, you know, a, a rented a temperature controlled wine locker. And I think the most recent hypomania that I had was, um, my psychiatrist had put me on Abilify, which turned out to be a fucking shit show. But the first month of it was delightful hypomania. And I was writing, you know, four songs a day. I bought that guitar that's in the other room. And then it just kind of turned on me. And I was suicidal and didn't want to get out of bed. And, you know, just a, a whole kind of nightmare of things. But I love hypomania. Although... You know, there had been times when I was hypomanic that uh, sex became a problem, you know, looking at porn for hours, um, not respecting people's boundaries and conversation, you know, because, well, I'm super excited about talking about sex right now. Why wouldn't you be? And I look back and I just cringe at how inappropriate I could be sometimes. But I can kind of recognize hypomania when it comes up nowadays, which is which is not very not very often. The struggle is more to find a healthy passion like playing guitar rather than playing video games. Or buying domains. Or buying domains. <laughs> when we come back, Paul opens up about recovering from the covert sexual abuse he experienced as a child and how he was comforted by his listeners when he started to share his story on his podcast. Stay with us. For every episode of All the Wiser You Hear, we donate $2,000 to a charity close to the heart of our featured guest. Paul chose to support the wonderful work of ASPCA. The ASPCA is currently on the ground in Fort Myers, Florida, in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Their team is conducting search and rescue efforts, supporting local shelters, and distributing pet food for animals and pet owners impacted by the hurricane. You can join us in supporting their critical work by going to their website at ASPCA.org. If you're comfortable sharing, you brought it up at the beginning, but if it's not something you want to talk about, we can quickly move on. But you talked about covert incest from your mother, covert sexual abuse. And we don't have to go into great detail, but I am fascinated by a few things. First of all, I think as a society, we think about sex abuse and certainly incest is a very black and white matter. Right. And I don't think we talk about mothers openly. Mm -hmm. On top of that, men talking about sex abuse is relatively new mm -hmm. on the scene. And going back to the black and white, that there's this gray, this variation in the experience, which can 
have the same consequences and impacts. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's a great book by Kenneth Adams called Silently Seduced, and that book was a game changer for me, you know, along with therapy and the support group I go to for intimacy struggles. But one of the things that Dr. Adams talks about in his book is the gray area, the things where, you know, my mom never jerked me off, we never fucked, you know, whatever you want to call it. But growing up in a sexualized, spousified environment as a child can cross your wires. And and it certainly did for me. When I was like, I don't know, just on the cusp of puberty, I think I was like 12 years old, maybe 13 years old, I'd fallen and gotten gravel in my knee. And my, and my mom said, well, let's get you into the bathtub. And I remember my first thought was, ick. Yeah. I don't want to be naked in front of you. And so I thought, uh, I'll put on a bathing suit. And then I was like, well, she's probably going to say what she normally does if I try to cover up or I don't want to be naked in front of her, which is, ugh, it's nothing I haven't seen before. I saw your thing before you ever did. And I was like, well, I don't want to deal with that conversation. And so I didn't wear a bathing suit. And as I was sitting in the tub, and it was filling up, and I was waiting for her to come in, I got an erection. And I remember thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? And she came in, and it it hadn't gone down. And there was just this really tense silence. She didn't say anything. She didn't touch it. But I remember thinking, you're a fucking monster. You are disgusting. And I think that kind of was... You thought that about your mom? No, about Yourself? me. Oh. I didn't think anything about my mom. I thought, I'm the you dirty one. It. I'm yeah. the dirty one. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until decades later that I could go... No, that was that was inappropriate. You didn't need to be naked in a bathtub. And I'd always explained away each individual thing. But when I took them as a whole, because one of the things I learned to do in the support group was to identify my patterns of inappropriate behavior or addictive behavior. I applied that to my mom. And the theme of all of them was I'm an object. And that's when I broke down and I started crying. And it's like the image I created of her to survive died. And it was a loss. It was a loss. And I felt like an astronaut whose lifeline out in space had been snipped. I didn't know up from down where the truth was. And I just wanted to die and I wanted a mommy. And it's so hard for me to have compassion for myself during that time because my go-to when I'm in pain is sex. And so I was looking for a mommy, but sexualizing it. So I would have these conversations with women who were nice and, and vulnerable, and they never shamed me for it. But I look back and I was like, oh my God, I was just, it's like I wanted a mommy who would then fuck me. Yeah. And it, it, it's embarrassing. And one of the things that I share when I tell my story is I tell anybody who's out there who is recovering from sex abuse, recovery is usually not graceful, it's not linear, and it's an opportunity for you to be your own best friend. You can note to self, oh, that wasn't 
an ideal way for me to express my feelings or deal with my feelings. Let's try to not do that again, but let's forgive ourselves, make an amends if necessary, and move on rather than being stuck in a shame spiral and assigning some type of horrible name to yourself. Well, you have an incredible amount of self-awareness and not that you need my validation about what happened to you, but as a mother of teenage boys and girls, that is, I mean, it makes me cringe and Mm. kind of want to freak out and scream that that happened because there is an appropriate window where you're bathing your baby and your child, mm-hmm. and you quickly have an instinct and a knowing as a mother where it no longer that boundary just exists, right? right? That they deserve privacy for their body, and that's appropriate, and that time has passed. And at that age, that is damaging. And inappropriate. Well, thank you for for saying that. And that was one of the things that was so comforting to me as I began processing this. Not only female friends in my support group, but the female listeners, the moms. When I shared my story on the podcast, they would they circled the wagons. I just had a visceral reaction. Yeah. Because moms have mama bear instincts, and that a mother would do that is really upsetting to me. And that was so soothing to me because I think any person who has gone through sexual violation questions their version of things, their integrity, where the truth lies, and to hear a mama bear circle the wagons. You know, I wouldn't wish it on my mom, but one mom emailed and said, I just heard your story. I want to kick your mom in the cunt. And I don't wish harm on my mom, but the fierceness and protectiveness of that mom was like, I cried in a lot of uh, hugs with, with women during that, that time. And I, and I, cause it's like, I would imagine what you wanted was someone to step in, protect you, stand up for you and, and sharing it. That happened, you know, too late, but, mm. but hopefully there's some healing in that. I had always wondered when I was in grade school, I had this fantasy, not sexual, but emotional fantasy of going up to an older girl on the playground and her holding me and me crying. And I didn't know why that was. And of course, when all this stuff surfaced a decade ago, it suddenly made sense that that's what I, that that's what I wanted. And One of the other epiphanies that I had is I began dealing with this and finding comfort in the kind of nurturing, soft energy of women is that in all my years of sexualizing and objectifying women, I had missed out on that. And that was what I was looking for in so many ways. And I'm proud to say that because of the work that I've put in to my support groups and therapy and reading books and sharing with people is I have a great relationship with my girlfriend. We've been together for four years and I'm able to let that softness in and it feels amazing. You know, I think a a great example of the difference is when I used to have sex I just wanted to like 
get out of bed and go shower. And I love laying in bed afterwards and her head on my chest. What and a gift to yourself. It's really nice to be able to be present. I used to almost be revolted by a, a woman looking at me with love in her eyes. And I always wondered why that was. And today I'm able to take that in and it feels really great. And and I, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy telling my story. Well, for one, I love talking about myself. But two, I love letting people know that it's possible for your icy heart to to thaw and to feel the feelings that you thought were just fucking lame. Because I used to think, oh, people in love, they're they're just lame. They're just dumb. I think, you know, this is, I've been thinking about this lately. I think one of the great lies that exist is people don't change. So often, you know, people talk about relationships. Well, people don't change. And when you think of what is possible in human transformation, it couldn't be further from the truth. So I just want that phrase to be like wiped off the planet because change is so possible and so powerful. And your story was a story of a beautiful change that's been a gift to you and to your girlfriend and to have that loving intimacy that didn't exist or wasn't available yeah. for you before. Yeah. It's a really cool thing. And and I would add that it takes a lot of work, a lot of rigorous self-honesty and a desperation to get something different out of life because most people don't change unless they have to. Some people are able to change just because it seems like it would be awesome to grow. But for myself, I had to be faced with death or a life of not experiencing the intimacy that I saw other people had. You know, the impetus was to just stop looking at porn or cheating. But through that, I got all these other benefits. And it's kind of like what a lot of people, when they roll into support groups for drinking and doing drugs, they just want to stop getting DUIs or, you know, having people leave them. But then they discover, oh, I got these tools now that helps me at my job or to be a good citizen or to be able to be a good, a good friend. So I'm glad you brought up support groups because you talk about support groups and the role they've played in your life a lot. Um, and listening to your podcast and interviews. And I think to most people, support groups are a mystery or there's misunderstanding, confusion, curiosity. So lift up the hood. Tell people. What the, is it? The first thing I would say is the variety of individual support groups varies widely. And so if you're going to go check them out, go to at least a half dozen or a dozen because they're dependent on the people that populate them. You know, there are some meetings that I've been to where there's almost no recovery and it's just people complaining. And I don't go back to those. But living in LA, which is the mecca of support groups, I'm able to find meetings that are amazing. And it's my college. It's where I learned the tools to live. You know, it's funny. We're taught algebra in high school. I've never used algebra. 
every day, 50 times a day, I need to know how to deal with my feelings and what's a healthy way of expressing them and, and coping. And and we're not taught that in, in school. We should be taught that in, in kindergarten. And apparently some places they are beginning to teach kids about emotions and expressing them. And is the power of it the sharing of human story? Yeah. Yeah. That's the heart of it. And that's one of the things that inspired the podcast was I realized I'm not going to absorb anything from a lecture talking intellectually or watching Dr. Phil berate somebody on TV. I thought, you know, before I started the podcast, what about something that just inspires people through the dark, fucked up stories and the, and the dark jokes and the vulnerability and not telling somebody what to do, but just sharing it. You know, I, I don't think of my podcast as a solution for anybody. I think of myself as the cheerleader for people to go out and get help, whether it's therapy or support groups or having a beer with a trusted friend and, and saying, hey, what's really going on? Yeah. Learning learning from one another in a safe space, sharing honestly what it means to be human, what it means to be in pain, what it means to fall down, get back up. Yeah. And one of the things I, I wanted to add about the, the people don't change, obviously, you know, some people don't change. Some people have no willingness uh, to change. And everyone's capable. Everyone is capable. I think most people are capable. I think <laughs> some true. people are incapable of change because they're incapable of rigorous uh, self-honesty. That's, that's a fair carve-out. But the other thing I wanted to say was I urge people to question getting into a relationship with somebody hoping that person is going to change yeah. because that is an insanity Yes. in and of itself. I think the the damaging piece is the internal narrative that change isn't possible. I can't change. Yes. This is who I am. Absolutely. I can't. Absolutely, there is evidence all over the world with millions and billions of people. But yes, betting on someone else's change for your happiness is a problematic. <laughs> to, to say the least, to say the least. Not a good bet. Not a good bet. And and I was that person who thought it was up to me to let people know where they were fucking up and being controlling. And, you know, I was a bad husband and I have a lot of shame and regret about that. I could be cold, bossy, withholding. And in my sick view, I thought I'm the one who knows best. Can you reconcile the past? You've talked about that a couple of times, feeling like you were reckless with women. And mm -hmm. can you reconcile and forgive yourself for that or not, really? To some degree, but because I hurt her, it's a really hard thing. Yeah, well, to, with marriage, that's yeah. another level. And I can understand that I was a sick person who didn't have the tools, but that doesn't take away the scars yeah. that I inflicted. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag. I've I've made amends, but it's still I don't like the idea that I damaged people. So I want to talk about your podcast. Mm -hmm. I think my audience listeners in particular are going to love it if they mm -hmm. don't already, just because we talk about a lot of the same things. Um, different format, but I think the heart of many of the conversations have a shared spirit to them. But before 
just take away for our listeners in living with what sounds certainly like pretty chronic depression, what works and what doesn't? Support groups, meds, staying in contact with people from my support group meetings, you know, outside of the meetings, trying to be of service, exercise, avoiding sugar, trying to eat healthy, talking about what's really going on with me when I don't want to talk about it. You know, a great example of that was the other night, uh, my normal Zoom meeting, I hosted and nobody showed up and I was thrilled because I didn't want to talk. I actually was in bed laying down with my laptop open and just about to log off when somebody logged on and I was like, oh, fuck. And I felt so much better afterwards. You know, we each kind of checked in on what's going on for, you know, maybe five minutes. And and at the end, I was like, I'm so glad that you logged on. You know, this is a guy I've known for 10 years. And I was like, I love you. I love you. Thank you for helping me. Yeah. And I felt different. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's the smallest things. Like I've been in periods and literally like the act of taking a shower. It's like... <laughs> The little moment of pushing yourself to something, even if it's just a 5% difference or a 10%, but it it can be the one person logging on. It could be walking out the front door, taking the shower. So what doesn't work? Video games, binging on junk food, thinking about myself, not in a constructive you know, what was my part in it? How can I handle this differently? But obsessing. Ruminating, yeah. Yes, ruminating, obsessing about myself. Lashing out. You know, hockey is one of my favorite things in the world to do. And it's always a barometer where I'm at kind of emotionally and spiritually. Because when I find myself starting to want to control so I can feel the joy of winning, which goes back to my childhood. And it was the only time my dad expressed true joy was like when I did good in sports. And when I start barking at my teammates, you know, I, I catch myself and go, none of my business, how they play the game. All I can control is how I yeah. show up. Yeah. But sometimes I'll feel that anger and that rage, like we're being humiliated and I take it personally. So lashing out, trying to control that does not work. And one of the things that does work that I do a lot is just cuddling with my dog and, you know, yeah. telling her how much I She's right love her. at yeah. my feet right now. Yeah. She's cuddle worthy. Yeah. And going to my girlfriend and saying, you know, I, I need some love. But normally I don't have to do that because she's, she's so affectionate. We're very, very affectionate with each other. And um, if I'd looked into the future and seen what I am like today, I'd probably have thrown up 10 years ago because I would have been like, that's just cheesy. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your podcast, mm -hmm. Mental Illness Happy Hour. And I love it. It was either in the Atlantic or the New York Times. My notes are a little fuzzy. But I thought it was a genius description. According to the comic and host, everyone hurts, even if just a little. That vague, sinking feeling that the world is passing us by. You give us an hour, we'll give you a hot ladle of awkward Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> I think that used to be my old introduction yeah. to it. Yeah. I think I missed like a line, but it, it works. Yes. So 
you do these surveys, anonymous surveys, which are fascinating. I mean, everyone listen to this podcast because it it really just it's like the underbelly. I mean, it, the, yeah, the stuff that the stuff. you think nobody else experienced. Some of it, very few people experience. But it, I, I mean, talk about hidden in the, in the attic in the yeah. very dark. Yeah. People have hidden this stuff away, and they just share. I mean, it's. I'm going to have you read a few. But in more than a decade of talking to people about their inner world, their mean voice, their mental health, their trauma, are there a few common themes that feel universal to you at this point? And if so, what are they? Shame and secrets. And that's one of the reasons why I created this survey called uh, Shame and Secrets. And I usually read at least one of those surveys on pretty much every podcast. And those are the kind of the deepest, darkest things that people share about a lot of sexual trauma, a lot of it where people don't fully give weight to the trauma that happened to them. Because one of the things is, you know, our brain does is it tries to minimize things that happen to us, maybe to hide the ugly fact that the world can be mean and chaotic There's a question, have you ever experienced sexual abuse or trauma? I can't remember what the wording is. And then they can choose no or yes, and I never reported it. Yes, and I reported it or some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And the most common one that people choose is they'll list something and say some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And then they write. And I was pleading no, no, pushing him off. You know, but it was my boyfriend and I don't know if it counts. I don't know if it counts. And somebody said, Paul, if you ever formed a band, it should be some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. It goes back to this. You and I talked about this in the interview, but it's so sad that the whole narrative of am I enough? Am I worthy? Then trans is my abuse enough? Is my mental illness uh, enough to have shame or for people to have empathy? It's insanity, but it's true. I think Mm -hmm. it's true internally that we experience our mental health and our trauma that way. You know, are people going to say, oh, get over it or not that big of a deal or stop dwelling? In a common fantasy, people list sometimes in the podcast is that they'll be injured, have to go into the hospital. So then people can give them care for them. Yeah. 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 And it's like, we don't need to physically be hurting for people to comfort us or help us. But it's so hard when you don't know how to say I'm hurting or you don't have people in your life that you can be vulnerable with because some people aren't safe to say I'm hurting because they'll be like, well, suck it up, you know. Yeah. I mean, those people exist. They do. Yeah. I think your courage in sharing everything you share, there is that risk, right? Of people saying, well, your story isn't enough or – and – What I have found in beginning to share my stories is that the reward is significantly better, bigger, more important, more impactful than the risk. So you take the risk and you probably take the hit and the criticism, but the other option is saying nothing and then the service is never given to the world because of your own ego. Couldn't have said it better myself. So. So, Paul, will you read some of the surveys? 
Uh, this one is called the Voice in Your Head Survey, and this is filled out by an agender person who calls themselves Soundstorm. Uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That I am an ugly, disgusting person. I think my sister is lovely and beautiful. We are identical twins. <laughs> uh, this one is from the Loves Survey, because I do like to have some surveys in there that have lightness and humor and softness. Some, you know, the, the darkness sometimes gets to me. And I imagine it can get to some people that are listening as well. So I try to mix in the light and the positive with the with the dark and the ugly. This is filled out by the from the love survey filled out by Manda Panda. And they write, I love the feeling of blowing your nose first thing in the morning and feeling that big booger dislodge. It's just a good way to start the day. I love the stuff that people would be afraid to say out loud. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey. And about her depression, a woman who calls herself LL writes, living in mud, heavy, but comforted by being in it. And I love that one because there is an odd comfort of familiarity, like a stinky blanket to depression or whatever our, our struggle is. And then this one is an awfulsome moment. We, we dubbed the word awfulsome because as I was reading all of these surveys, I realized, wow, there are some negative things that also have some humor or positivity in them. It's not always all it was bad or it was good. And I'm especially intrigued and love bittersweet moments. And so this person, she calls herself one non-blonde and she writes, my boyfriend and I, and he was uh, 24, she's 23, were setting up a movie for the night, but before we got anything playing, he was already snuggled up to me and was out. His head was resting in my lap, and at first I thought he was just resting his eyes. After he doesn't wake up when I said his name, I start to strum my pointer finger across his lips, like someone might do to imitate being underwater. This didn't seem to wake him up either. Turns out he was not napping in my lap like I thought. He was overdosed on fentanyl. An ambulance was called, Narcan was administered twice, and luckily he's been sober from white drugs since. Looking back at it, an OD was the furthest thing from my mind of what was happening at the time, and I'm just glad there wasn't a marker around for me to begin doodling as I thought he was asleep. I mean, a great example, and thankfully he's sober. She says from white drugs, I will be sober from all drugs because man thinking that, oh, just this one drug is the problem. I'm going to try this other one. I never see that work out, but at least he's not taking fentanyl. Obviously, humor is a part of your podcast. So anybody who's listening who thinks it's all really heavy and dark, it is, but it's also really funny. But one of the things you talk about is our collective mental health in society and the idea of human decency and kindness and how we all talk about but quickly forget that we're prioritizing that and what a difference that collective shift could make. So as a friendly PSA reminder to everyone listening and ourselves, you and I, speak to that. Who is it that said, 
be the change that you want in the world. And it's so hard when you're frustrated or angry or sad or experiencing any kind of overwhelming negative emotion. But again, to harp on the getting sober in the support group meetings, it was there that I discovered power of vulnerability and, and service. And almost never do I want that. That's almost never my first impulse. But again, that's why I go to my support group on a weekly basis because I need to be reminded of that feeling of community rather than trying to come up with some brilliant domain name plan on my own. And I always feel better after I leave my support group or I get off the phone of somebody helping me or me helping them. And I try to bring it into my life outside of my connection with people in my support group. You know, if I'm in line for coffee and I like somebody's t-shirt, I'll say, man, that's an awesome t-shirt. Where'd you get that? And you just see if they weren't smiling, they'll smile a little bit and maybe their energy is, is boosted a bit. Maybe they'll not flip somebody off when they're on the road five minutes later. And it, it has a cascading effect. You know, I think back to who I used to be. And, the, you know, there was a large part of me that was a cancer on society. And today I try to keep the mindset that I can be a little bit of medicine rather than the cancer. And it doesn't have to be a huge thing. I don't have to start my own nonprofit. I can use my turn signal. It's you know? if you can visualize all like a shift in all those micro moments, like the ripple of that, what our days would be like, even if everybody just a little bit here right. and there, like yeah. it's, it would really, really be a powerful thing, but we all forget. We do. We do. And, and I had to hit rock bottom to have it suggested to me by people helping me that I needed to look at my fears and my resentments. And as I did those, I learned a lot about myself. I learned that I'm terrified that my life will be forgettable that I am not special, not in a way that, you know, I'm better than anybody else, but that I, I have meaning and value. And through going through those fears and resentments, I was able to really learn what a fearful person I am and how I take so many things in life personally. And I experience traffic differently today than I did 20 years ago in that if somebody cuts me off today, my first instinct is still the same. It's anger. And then I go, okay, what's my fear? My fear is that I'm not worthy of respect. Well, th that it has nothing to do with that. That person doesn't know me. They're probably full of fear that they're running late and they're going to lose a job or somebody's not going to like them anymore. And in that moment, I suddenly feel grateful that I'm not experiencing what that person is experiencing because I've lived that life of being that and I can still be in that headspace. But in that moment, I go, oh, it's not about me and it's gone and I'm grateful. And to go from anger to gratitude is amazing to me, but it started with me having to own my own shit and look inward and say what's really going on with me. Do you think... Everyone, for the most part, everyone walking around the planet has a mean voice in their head. Yeah, I do. I do. I think it, there might be some people who don't, but I think it's just all varying degrees of how often 
it chirps you and how loud it is. I think some people, it's the only voice in their head, especially people that are just enraged and just projecting shit on Facebook and trying to change people. And it's like, no, why don't you work on your own shit for a while? Yeah, there's an internal hatred. Well, I was thinking of it a little bit because it would make us all perhaps more compassionate to think of the world that way, but also the kindness, decency piece. It's so hard when you are in a really dark, hurting place. And and the thing that I think makes it possible, in fact, I think it's almost impossible to get to that place of compassion and kindness, is if we don't get vulnerable. Yeah. If we don't soften up, how are we going to give softness? And it's a terrifying first step, especially if we grew up in an environment where vulnerability was to be destroyed or humiliated or or there wasn't a positive outcome from letting our guard down. All right, not to bring up your death, but that's this is how we're going to end. I love it. <laughs> so I heard you interviewed and somebody asked you if you were afraid of dying and you had the best answer. You said you really weren't because you've been so honest with yourself and other people about your emotions that you don't think you would live with much regret, both being honest about the hurts and have, mm. processing those, but also being someone who tells people what they mean and how deeply they love. So I don't think most people could say that. Do you still think that's true? I do, but, you know, I... I say, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of suffering. Yeah. Terribly afraid of suffering. So I still feel that same way. You know, give me a fatal disease. I might feel completely differently and be like, what the fuck was I talking about? I will never get to play guitar again. I'll never get to see my girlfriend again. Oh my God. Suddenly realizing there's all these things I've never done. And then I'm living with total nausea until the day I die. I, so who knows? But that's how I feel when somebody asks me that that question. But well, And of course, I would miss the people that I, I love. Well, I think we're, yes, nobody sits in peace thinking about that type of suffering. But I love your clarity on the other piece, because I think we should all live that way. So I just thought that was cool, because I know so many people often say, I wish I would have had a chance to. So there's a, there's a book uh, called The Gentle Path uh, by, oh, fuck, I'm spacing on his name. Is it John Bradshaw? Um, I can't remember. But one of the things he says in there is an exercise. He says, imagine your death and picture this and picture that. What are a list of things that you wish you would have done? And then fucking go out and do those. Yeah. Anyone who's listening who has something they really want to say to someone, go do it. Do it today. Yeah, because yeah, we all know the conversations, the loving ones, the hard ones that would bring both people peace. Yeah, And intimacy is almost impossible, not only without, obviously, the caring, vulnerable conversation, but more importantly, the difficult conversations. Being willing to say, the right thing at the right time with the right words and the right tone of voice has made it possible for me to have intimacy because the more shit you sweep under the rug, the more that becomes a wall between you and that other person, you know, lingering 
even unconscious resentments at that person. So being willing to say, hey, when you said that thing yesterday, that kind of hurt my feelings. Can we talk about that? I never used to do that. And I do that today and it makes a big difference. What do you hope people take away from your story? That I'm an asshole. (laughs) That I'm deep down unlikable. And that if they see me... Unlovable. Don't forget that. Let's not forget that. Dumb. Um, I hope they take from it that your people are out there. It's just a matter of finding them. There, There is hope if you are willing to move your feet and find solutions. You can experience the emotions that you thought weren't available to you. Peace, joy. You know, joy is something that comes and goes with me, but peace is pretty much a constant in my life. Even if I'm feeling depressed, I can still feel some peace because I I surrender to that is what it is today. I'm going to go lay down. I'm going to be nice to myself. I'm not going to shame myself. We can feel those things. It's just be willing for help to arrive in a form that you can surrender to. It's not going to be on the schedule you want, in the form you want. That's why it's help. If you could control it, you would have done it on your own already. But you're missing out trying to do it on your own. You're missing great conversations and closeness and laughter and tears and sometimes arguments and then getting to make up. Yeah. I love all of that. I love ending on that note. And I love Mental Illness Happy Hour. And I want everyone to listen. It's really, really, I mean, saying content makes it feel like so minimizing what it is. But you're really good at it. Your guests are amazing. In particular, I heard you had this host of All the Wiser who was just amazing, fabulous. Knocked it out of the park. And the interesting thing is, off the mic, terrible person. <laughs> terrible person. So we're going to end with lightning round, which I used to call rapid fire. And a listener told me that it made her... <laughs> Think of gun violence. So we it changed made me the name. think of it too. Yes. yes. So I love when our listeners are honest and help yeah. me become a better person. So lightning round. Favorite documentary? The Birth of Silicon Valley on PBS. Awesome. Pet peeve? The overuse of the word literally. Literally? <laughs> literally. And that's an actual way of using it. This one's cliche, but if you could have one superpower. God. Time travel? Little known fact from the guy who shares everything. (laughs) So stupid. I call my dog one of three things on a rotating basis. Ladybird, princess, and angel. (laughs) Literally pet names. Best piece of advice you've ever been given. Learn how to get vulnerable. Thank you, Paul. And where can our guests find you, support you, learn about you? Uh, The website for the podcast is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles you can can find uh, us at. And there's like... 
I don't know. I think everything except the first two years of the podcast are uh, available to listen to. So that's like, I don't know, 400 episodes, something like that. Well, congratulations. It's a great show making a difference. I love talking to you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Paul Gilmartin. And in the spirit of honesty and sharing, we want you to share your honest feelings about this show. Is there something we do that's a little bit annoying and you wish we did it differently? Do you cry at every episode? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Tell us, honestly, we want to hear it. All of it. You can DM us on Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast, or you can send us an email at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com. And I'm going to read them on the show, so please be, well, a little bit kind. All The Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our composer and sound designer is John Lasala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Jackass, nut job. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.